For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to invite you to register for a free virtual symposium on May 19th, 2022, Celebrating by Literacy, Realizing a Better Future for Our Spanish Speakers. During this event, you'll discover how to celebrate and honor the unique skills, strengths, and needs your multilingual learners bring to the classroom, as well as how to accelerate literacy development for your Spanish speakers. Register now at the link in the show notes. Dr. Claude Goldenberg joins me today in an episode that is packed with a bunch of information and some entertainment. If you don't know his work, Dr. Goldenberg, who recently retired from Stanford, is a biliteracy expert whose work has been influential in moving forward evidence-based literacy practices. I'm keeping this intro short so we can just jump right in. And don't worry if you don't have a way to take notes, you'll be listening to this episode again and again. Welcome, Claude. We're so glad to have you on today's episode. Welcome. Thanks, Susan. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, you, as you know, we always like to start this by you introducing yourself and sharing with our listeners just a little bit of your journey and how did you end up in this world of literacy? The world of literacy, right. Well, after college, um, my parents, my parents were living in San Antonio, Texas, and so I went to San Antonio, and I taught there for two years. I taught uh, junior high. Back in the day, we called it junior high. It's now middle school. I feel like I always have to. I remember those that. days. I bet you do. <laughs> um, so I taught junior high reading and history um, for two years. Um, my first year, I had five periods of very low readers. The, mm. the principal I interviewed with said, "Well." We got we got a, an, a a place for you. I got kids who were so low that I took away the, I took away their their elective and told them they have to take reading. So mm. you want to do that? So of course, out of college, I thought, well, the more impossible, the, the more better. I mean, I'm, right. I'm in it. You know, this is what I'm <laughs> this is what I'm coming for. So um, I took the position, and honestly, I was just I was just shocked. At, at the kids, uh, they were they were so low. I had some literal non-readers. These were like eighth graders, who were mm. anywhere from five to eight years behind in reading. I mean, somewhere like reading at a pre-primer level. I mean, the idea that you'd give a beginning teacher this assignment is well, we can leave that for another day. But that that the principal really was not on his game, shall we say. But in any case, I took the job and I was just, I realized very shortly thereafter that I was just woefully unprepared. I I just could not really, I mean, I had a lot of ideals, a lot of ambition in terms of doing the right thing for the kids. But, you know, I took a couple of classes in reading at the local university, but I I was really kind of lost. But, you know, I sort of muddled through and then I decided to go to go back to graduate school to sort of learn more about child development. And at that point, reading per se wasn't my interest, although I was teaching reading, so I got a little bit into that literature. But it was really just the the, the horrible state of the educational achievement of these students. So I went to graduate school and see if um, I couldn't learn more. And then during the course of my graduate 
years, I came to see literacy really as a linchpin of education. Uh, I mean, certainly formal education, right, which, you know, human beings have invented in many different forms uh, in order to make sure that some of the succeeding generation have the knowledge and tools, you know, to keep the society going. Mm. And of course, we also know that those opportunities to gain the knowledge and skills are not equitably distributed. So this both, you know, reflects, but it also perpetuates the inequities in our society. In our societies, it's not unique to the United States by any means. Sure. So for all these reasons, you know, the centrality of literacy, the unequal and unfair access to literacy and what it affords to people, I decided it was where I wanted to focus my efforts. And in particular, literacy for historically and currently disadvantaged and marginalized populations. So did you find that that uh, graduate program helped prepare you for classroom or did it spur you more into your curiosity about what kids need? What, what path did it take? Well, the most immediate path it took was the dissertation. The study that I did <laughs> was on um, uh, Hispanic Latino kids in a very poor area. It, it was actually like an immigrant entry point for many, many students and their families. And I taught, I, I did the dissert, my dissertation at the school that had a bilingual program. And, you know, I, I discovered some really important, interesting things about what differentiated success and lack of success. And I decided that uh, after I finished my dissertation that I, I was so learned in the area of early literacy <laughs> That I wanted to, I wanted to, use, I wanted to have my own classroom to use as my laboratory and to be able to demonstrate things that I had learned, that I thought I knew, and um, so I taught first grade for three or four years after finishing my PhD, and I focused on on literacy, literacy development, homeschool connections, and various aspects of that. That's what I did. Yeah, interesting. So going from junior high down to first grade, and then a, a PhD and taking, you know, like an, a more unusual path, right, right back into the classroom. How did you find that uh, sort of differences between teaching junior high and teaching first grade? Because that's a, that's a big change. Yeah, well, let me count the ways. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that my my junior high kids had a lot of positive qualities, but Passing through adolescence was not one of them. <laughs> I remember <laughs> I, I wasn't particularly fond of my adolescence, and I wasn't particularly fond of theirs either. It was a, a challenge. And, and teaching first grade was also a challenge, but in a very different way. I mean, I, I have to say that the younger kids, um, I, I really just personally enjoyed interacting with them. Now, I had a lot of colleagues in junior high who love that age. And I know there are people around the country, you know, teachers who love Thank goodness, that. Age. right? Thank goodness and God bless them, you know, because those kids need people who love working with them. You know, the thing, they're one minute, they're mature, well-formed adults. The next minute, they're crybabies and immature, and you just can't reason with them. I mean, that's the nature of adolescence in our society, for, for better, for worse. And it, it was hard, in addition to all the, you know, achievement questions of teaching the read and teaching history and the low levels of achievement. Adolescent, you know, storm and drang. I mean, that's what adolescence is all about. So I really like six-year-olds much better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, bless you for that. And for our listeners, you're actually, you're actually biliterate yourself, right? So you speak Spanish, English, read, write, all that in both languages? Yeah. I mean, I'm originally from Argentina. I was born in Argentina. My parents came to the States when, and I came to the States when I was three. So Spanish was my first language. Um, English is now my dominant language because I've had all my education here and I'm, you know, far more proficient in English and, you know, all aspects of English language. You know, I'm Spanish. I'm, I'm fluent. I can read and write. Not particularly well. If I have to write anything in Spanish, I email it to my mom so she can <laughs> correct my spelling and accent, free writing and so forth. But yeah, but I mean, as long as you mentioned, you know, my parents actually provided me with a world-class bilingual education because they insisted that I speak Spanish at home. They said, aquí hablamos en español. I mean, they were very unambiguous about that. 
And I resisted, you know, because you learn English. That's the, ling- the language of status in the society. I mean, I was all set rattling off in English. They wouldn't have it. You speak Spanish at home. And, mm. and they said, you're going to thank us one day. And here you are thanking them and this day. Here I am thanking them. And I, I actually, one of my, one of my books, I dedicated them for providing me with a world-class bilingual education. Mm. That's, that's so powerful. And we'll, we'll talk about it, I'm sure in, in a few minutes, but just this idea that honoring, respecting that home language that students come in and not just that, but continuing to help them develop in it helps them then develop as readers and writers in English too. I, I think so. The big controversy, and we can get into it later, but the big controversy is what is what should be the school's role in that? Because sure. ironically, if there had been bilingual education 65 years ago, which there wasn't, at least not where I was, uh, my guess is my parents would have resisted putting me in bilingual education because they say, we want them to learn English in school. We'll take care of the Spanish. Hmm. And in fact, I've had several, I had several conversations with my father who just didn't understand what's all this bilingual education stuff. You didn't have bilingual education and you turned out basically okay. <laughs> okay, point noted, but I told him there's some differences and, and we have different, you know, populations who don't come with the social capital. My, my parents were college educated people, right? I had literacy mm-hmm. and academic language and all those sociocultural resources in the home. And a lot of the kids who come to schools speaking a language other than English don't have those resources in the home. So it's not that those parents don't provide support, can't be helpful, but I had the advantage of having the kind of interactions at home that you have in a college-educated home with the kind of work that you do at school that's academic, supposed to be, you know, by its nature. And so the combination of those was extremely powerful. So I had to explain to my dad that our context was very different from the the predominant context uh, throughout the country for many of the emergent bilinguals that we teach in our schools. And then even if they were the same, the school still has a role to play. You can still play a role in an academic program promoting, supporting biliteracy. In fact, I think if I were in that if I had been in that kind of program, there's a good chance that my literacy skills in Spanish would have been stronger than than they are. Now, I took Spanish mm-hmm. in high school, and that actually didn't help my, my oral language. I, I learned all sorts of things about the subjunctive and the preterite and all those fine points of language that I didn't know existed. But when I took Spanish formally, I learned yeah. about them, and I learned about mm-hmm. accent. I, I systematically and formally learned about my f- first language in a way that I never learned. My, my mom taught me to read, and, and that was a real springboard for me once I got to school. But beyond that and making me write letters to my grandmother and so forth, there was very little formal education in the Spanish language and Spanish literacy. And I think I could have benefited from that if I had been in a bilingual program. But, you know, it's just speculation. Hmm, that's interesting. We will get into that biliteracy um, piece in in just a little bit. But hearing me, hearing no, hmm, let me say that again. Me hearing you talk about that development uh, helps me realize that this this term, science of reading, right? It's I haven't decided, Claude, if it's ubiquitous, <laughs> if it's like them are fighting words. I it's clearly not as deeply understood as, as what it needs to be. So I'm going to ask you this. When, when, when I say science of reading, since this is science of reading the podcast, when I say of science course. of reading, what does that mean to you? Right. Well, Susan, this might shock you, but I think, <laughs> are you ready to be shocked? Ready. I'm ready. Bring it on. But I think of a bog as in we get bogged down with labels that mean different things to different people. And I think science of reading is the latest example of this. There there are plenty of others. Since you asked me about science of reading, let me pick on science of reading. Now, on the one hand, I think science is a good thing. I I think it's a very good thing. And scientific research on reading, whether you call it science or not, makes no difference to me. But research on reading has helped us understand a wide range of really very, very important things. For example, 
how, how essential it is to teach foundational skills to beginning readers so they can tightly link or, or bind is the term in some of the literature. The sounds of the language with the letters and the letter combinations that represent those sounds. Now, this is usually called phonics or decoding. Some people call it common sense. I, I won't take that. I don't take that on any further, other than to say that it is a, a bit more complicated with aspects that are really less obvious. But whatever you call it, linking the sounds of the language, the representation in print, in the spelling system, is absolutely essential for learning to read and write. Right. We also know that we can identify and intervene early with kids who are at risk for reading difficulties. And that those difficulties spring from different, really different causes, even though they might, as the doctors say, present very similarly, they result from very different causes. And that if we instruct and intervene appropriately, we can really head off a number of, um, a number of reading difficulties, particularly, particularly at the beginning and early stages. And we also know that continued development reading and writing requires a whole lot more than just foundational skills, as foundational as they are. Really, reading development requires more than that. It requires aspects of language development. It requires background knowledge. It requires direct experience that helps you contextualize what you're reading. It requires increased levels of motivation that, that'll keep you engaged and work at understanding and, and, and further development as a, as a reader. So these are all very important insights and knowledge that, that's been gained from reading research or science of reading, if you, you know, prefer that term. Mm. Now, can I ask you a question? Before you go, before you go on, let me ask you this question. So since sure. you, um, we're going to talk about, uh, biliteracy later, those principles apply to whether you're learning English or let's say whether you're learning Spanish. Am I right? That's yes. still the same, the same things you still have to understand to be a reader and comprehend what you're reading. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, I mean, and there's, there's actually a worldwide literature on what are the, the, the essentials of learning to read. And it, it's particularly true for alphabetic languages, but it turns out it's also true for ideographic and, you know, languages with different characteristics. But let's focus on alphabetic languages, right? That letters and letter combinations in writing represent the sounds of the language, the sounds contained in words. Any alphabetic language, the foundation of learning to read is linking the sounds of the language with their visual representations across the board. Hmm. And as maybe we'll get, and it's true, even if you're learning to read a language that you are simultaneously learning to speak and understand. The difference is if you don't know the language, as you're learning to read it, you also have to be taught the meanings of the words and the text that are being used to teach you to read. The process is the same, but that the semantic system of the language, right? What the words mean, mm. you can't take those for granted. Whereas if you're six years old and you speak English and you're learning to read in English, you can assume that the student understand the words that you're using to teach them to read. Run, I, see, stop. Mm -hmm. You've got to mm -hmm. do an English language development lesson with English speakers. But yeah. kids who don't know the language you need to make sure they're understanding the words that you're using to teach them to read. That's the Got fundamental it. difference. Got it. We'll unpack more of that later. So I know I totally interrupted you because you were going to give us another, what else you, uh, yeah, uh, what else you believe about science of reading. So go ahead. <laughs> another part of the bog. <laughs> <laughs> right? There you go. <laughs> I hope no one's offended by that. But Okay. So, so let me talk a little bit about science. So there are uh, many aspects to science. Uh, some get privileged, shall we say, more than others. So science is not all randomized control trials. I mean, they're important, right? I mean, that, that's a way of getting some knowledge that, if not definitive, is, let's say, a little more secure than mm -hmm. simply observing or doing correlations or ethnographic studies. So there's a place for different 
forms of knowledge in the, let's say, in the, in the empire of science, if you want to call it an empire. But there are two things that are true of any sort of science that I know about. One is precision or, or clarity. They mean slightly different things, but I'm going to kind of use them interchangeably, precision and clarity. The other is skepticism. And both of these are lacking in the discussion over science of reading. And I'll give you an example from both sides of the fence, so to speak. Great. First of all, uh, from the science of reading side of the fence, <laughs> I hope I don't get in too much trouble with my science of reading colleagues, but be that as it may. So science of reading advocates uh, love to cite a group of very important studies that were reviewed by Joe Torgerson in 2004 in a really important but way undersighted paper in American Educator, you know, the AFT publication. Mm -hmm. Yep. In this article, Torgerson really persuasively demonstrated that we have the tools to help as many as 95% of all kids get to at least low average in reading level by the end of second grade. Okay. Now, this sounds very modest, but it's not trivial because in fact, it would be a hugely important accomplishment if we were to do this on a national scale, right? So I'm not downplaying its importance at all. But here's what's rarely discussed. First, reading level is a bit misleading because what Torgerson and the other researchers were referring to were word reading skills, sometimes called word attack skills. It's a little mm -hmm. militaristic, I'm afraid, but that's what they're called. And there are subtests that are, set, that are labeled word attack skills. You can unpackage that with a linguistics person you have on your, Great. On your podcast <laughs> later on. But I'm not going to touch that, just pointing it out. So, okay, that's a very important part of reading, word attack skills, word reading, accuracy. Um, but it's a pretty constrained definition of what reading actually is. And, you know, I never see this acknowledged except in Torgerson's review, which Everyone should read, by the way. And, and if you haven't, I would strongly suggest it. And I'd be glad to you know, send you a link to it. Yeah. Torgerson himself, you know, who's one of the leading lights and researchers in the field of beginning and early reading and prevention of reading difficulties, he, he acknowledged this in the article. And he said, and this is a direct quote, this, meaning word reading skills, this cannot be considered the ultimate standard for the effectiveness of early preventive instruction. Have you ever heard that acknowledged? I haven't. I've read the article multiple times. Um, tell our listeners why you think that is so important. Because it's, a, because it's a very constrained definition of what reading is. As important mm. as word attack skills and word reading skills are important, one might say foundational, it's a very constrained definition. There's much more to reading than that. And if that's what you cite and that's what you claim is going to pull kids out of the bottom quartile and not acknowledge that you're talking about a very important but limited aspect of reading, then you're not telling the whole story. Can I say, can I phrase that another way just sure. to be sure that I have some, some understanding here? What you're saying is those word level reading skills, you have to have those. But there's a lot more that we need to develop in students when we're talking about being great, proficient comprehenders and readers, that mm -hmm. that's only one element. And we need to make sure we talk about all these other elements. That's right. And we need to be very clear about what we're claiming when we mm -hmm. say rather loosely that Torgerson's and the studies reviews showed that you can get kids out of the bottom quartile if you focus on these foundational skills. It's true, but it's incomplete, mm -hmm. right? And, and a big part of that incompleteness comes in another form, in another aspect of what Torgerson says. Because as important as we acknowledge those things are, they, they say no, these studies say nothing about preventing reading difficulties from grade three and beyond. Since we know from other research, that hitting at least low average in reading skills after grade two requires a whole lot more than foundational skills. You know, the things that I mentioned, language, background knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. And again, yep. 
Torgerson himself in this article challenges the reading community, particularly researchers, to do the work to enable us to hit that mark from grade three and up. And mm-hmm. nothing that I've seen nor anyone that I've asked indicates that we're close to meeting what you might call the Torgerson challenge. You know, maybe they have, and I just haven't seen it or heard of it, but I haven't heard or read anything that's been said, or I haven't heard or, or read everything, everything's been published. So it, you know, I might've missed it, but the fact is that rarely gets discussed. In fact, I never hear it discussed by science of reading advocates who have a very firm basis for certain claims, but don't acknowledge that it's a fairly constrained set of claims that can be made. Can I, I'm going to ask you a follow-up on that because um, here on like science of reading, like on the podcast, the way we define science of reading is we use, or I do, uh, the framework of the simple view of reading, making it very clear that word recognition is only one element and that language comprehension also needs to develop to be developed not just at third grade but starting already when kids come to us in kindergarten and we can do that even with text through a read aloud environment but that's yep. very important we start that language development and language comprehension starting in kindergarten do you agree with that yes yes i have i have no i have no problem with that um, but the the let's say the evidentiary base or the science mm-hmm. on which mm-hmm. different parts of those statements are based vary in their kind of robustness right their Makes solidity, their scientificism whatever mm-hmm. term you want to, it, the, the knowledge base in many respects is very solid and very secure and in other respects is still kind of speculative and you know, there's there's much more to know and understand. And my concern is that when science of reading gets interpreted in fairly superficial, incomplete, and imprecise way, that gets translated into policies, into state legislation, into Department of Education requirements, standards, and mandates that are equally superficial and don't tell a full story, don't tell the full picture. And people walk away thinking, well, simple view of are you using the simple view of reading method? Well, that's not a method. You know, right. That's a way of thinking about the elements. And even that has its limitations, even though I have no objection. I mean, I think Phil Goff made a huge contribution, as did Joe Torgerson, as all these other giants mm-hmm. that we try to stand on but I, by identifying this. But the story is more complex and is being built out. And there are elements that don't get as much attention as they should. Partly, I think, because the knowledge base around foundational skills is so solid. I mean, it's got yeah. its own quirks, right? And its own imprecisions and its own, you know, it's very probabilistic. There's, there's very little that is guaranteed in the world of education. You know, we have to think in terms of, I mean, and people don't like to think in, in probabilistic terms. If you do certain things in education, you're not guaranteed some result. You either increase right. or decrease the probability of getting what you want. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was just reading an article yesterday about the problem with discussing public policy. That's not the reading is that people don't think like economists. Well, of course not. And people don't think in probabilistic terms. You know, they want they want certainty. They want assurance. And I understand that. But there is no certainty. There is no assurance. There's probabilities greater right. or lesser, depending on the kind of things that you do and don't do. Right. And our goal then is to take those high probability concepts and and work through those to give our yes. kids the best chance at learning how a- to read. A- absolutely. And and right now I can tell you that it's I don't know I don't want to be melodramatic but it's a crime. I mean it's a crying shame if nothing else that we don't have fully implemented throughout the country a strong emphasis on foundational skills as the foundation as the basis of becoming literate. And they're mm-hmm. like of reasons why we don't, uh, we might get into this later on, but it, if nothing else, that should be put in place. And it's a failure of implementation, failure of implementation, not of the science, that we haven't done that in all 50 states, territories, and everywhere else. Hmm. 
one last question on that, and then we're going to, we're going to jump to another question. Um, if you, so about this, the evidence base and, and like, that's really strong in foundational skills, but sort of these other language elements, um, if you could wave your magic PhD wand, where would you, where would you like to see more, more research in what areas to help us with that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and if I get a PhD wand, I'll let you know. And I'll thank you. Check, I'll check back with you in case I've forgotten something. No, I, I think language development is uh, phenomenally important. Uh, now, as you know, I work with English learners, so that's particularly salient in, in my field and, and, you know, my colleagues and so forth. But it's true across the board uh, because as Torgerson pointed out and, other P and even the simple view says, um, without really advanced and developing levels of language proficiency, your ability to progress in terms of literacy is really constrained. Mm -hmm. Now, there, there are lots of aspects of this, a lot of issues, some of them ideological, some of them political, some you know, philosophical and theoretical, practical. So there are lots of dimensions to this, um, including the fact that some people resist the notion of, say, um, casting standard English, academic English, as the lingua franca for everyone. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. there are many dimensions to this. But putting those aside for a moment, th there's just no doubt that if, if kids don't develop language in a, in a comprehensive and progressive sort of way, um, their literacy skills are going to be limited. And part of the problem is developing language, as I'm talking about, requires lots of things, not just knowing more words, as important as vocabulary is, and not just having a grasp of syntax, but the amount of background knowledge that you need, both specific to what you're reading, but also more generally to kind of like word, world knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, is considerable, is, is tremendous. And we know that all of these things matter, but we don't really have a good handle on how to accelerate their development. I mean, it's particularly problematic for English learners, but not just English learners. You know, kids who speak, you know, limited English for whatever reason, uh, because they, they, they speak a, ver of a, a version of English, a variety of English, which is valid and true in its, in its own context. In the general school context, it's a disadvantage not being highly proficient in the language, the academic language that's the coin of the realm. In, in schools. Mm -hmm. And I know even for English learners, we have very poor knowledge base on how to accelerate English language development. And most of that, limited studies, and even those are at very beginning, mm -hmm. very beginning stages. So we have some studies of vocabulary development, you know, later on, middle school and middle elementary and middle school and on up. And vocabulary is important, um, but we don't have a real Robust, robust knowledge base because the transfer from learning vocabulary words to actually then improving your reading achievement, there is some bump, right? It's not nothing, but it's very, very modest. So hmm. we have a lot to work on in that domain. Well, that's that's great. So calling all researchers or wannabe researchers, um, maybe we can recruit some of them to to fill in the gaps of this research. That would be well, amazing. Well, let's hope so. And if you recruit them, Susan, what I would say is put to them the Torgerson challenge because he really laid down a marker. He yeah. really laid down an, an important marker. You might say, okay, well, you picked the low-hanging low fruit. No, it's not low-hanging fruit. One of the problems, one of the things I run into is people who kind of disparage the science of reading, whatever you call it, is that, well, yeah. it emphasizes phonics, which is not true, but they think it emphasizes only phonics. And they say, right. well, you know, that's, that's the easy part. Heck no, it's not, it's not the easy part. And if it were so easy, why isn't everyone on board having at least at the low average level word attack skills, right? So the notion that learning the foundational skills, phonics and decoding, you know, I, I, I hear that from lots of people. Oh, I love that you said that because, yeah, if it was easy, we would be doing it. And there's nothing about developing proficient readers that's actually easy. Proficient readers and writers, I should add that for sure. For sure. Absolutely. That's a good point. Absolutely. I, I use reading and literacy interchangeably, which yeah. I know is imprecise, you know, violating my own, my own rule of precision, but I'm glad you mentioned that. Absolutely. Yeah.
So, so Susan, can I? I know you were going to ask me, but I wanted to give you an example of lack of precision from the other side of the fence. Just oh, I forgot about that. Yes, just please. for equal time. Let's, Is that okay? For sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I want to be. I want to be even-handed in my whatever it is. Um, <laughs> so you know there. There's a lot of, uh, I mentioned skepticism as an important part of science that m- most people, I mean, I rarely hear being talked about, uh, certainly in this context. I mean, people just don't acknowledge it. So uh, uh, and there's certainly a lot of that in science of reading. But, but, I also, from, but from the standpoint of reading, of, reading, reading science skeptics, which mm-hmm. include a lot of people, as, as you well know. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of, I should say, skepticism fueled by a combination of misunderstanding and legitimate skepticism. I mean, there's legitimate room for skepticism of reading research. Mm-hmm. But when it's fueled by misunderstanding, then, then that's just not a good thing. Um, now, science of reading advocates have contributed some of that misunderstanding, uh, as I indicated. But beyond that, there's more misunderstanding and lots of suspicion. And one of these misunderstandings is what actually constitutes foundational skills. So, as as I mentioned, as you know, foundational skills are those that link or bind the letters with the sounds to enable decoding and word recognition. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, what happens is that a lot of the skeptics say that science of reading has led to states mandating 90 minutes of phonics and decoding instruction. Now, when I first heard this, I thought, well, that sounds strange. I mean, first of all, that's a very bad idea. I mean, I would never subscribe to that. And I don't know any science of reading people who would subscribe to it. But it turns out, just to cut to the punchline here, it turns out that People were confusing foundational skills with uh, those five pillars that the National Reading Panel identified as essential for early reading instruction. Well, the five pillars are the foundational skills plus vocabulary and comprehension. So when people complain that some states and districts mandate 90 minutes of phonics decoding, what they actually mean, but don't realize it, is that states and districts mandate 90 minutes of those five pillars, phonologic awareness, phonics, which includes letter sound knowledge and decoding, fluency, Mm. and four and five, vocabulary and comprehension. Now, we can certainly disagree whether those five should be the sum and substance of early reading instruction. Okay, we can disagree. That's a legitimate question. But at least let's be clear and precise about what it is we're talking about. And it turns out that's harder than it would seem. So uh, there are a lot of phonic skeptics, which and skepticism is not a bad thing. It's part of science, right? Absolutely part of science. But if you're skeptical because you don't understand certain things, that's never a good thing. Uh, you know, I've never thought about that, Claude, about a uh, misunderstanding between the five pillars that came up from the National Reading Panel and what foundational skills are and how people maybe conflate those two things. And so I'm glad you called that out because I'm going to keep my ears open for that now. Yeah. Well, you know, and let me know if you hear it and or conversely, if you don't hear it, I mean, who knows? Uh, you know, everyone might have listened to this podcast and and be disabused of that confusion or they might disagree. I mean, yeah, you never know. Yeah. You never know. Well, we'll find out because our listeners are pretty good about um, sending us comments and feedback. So I'll let, I'll let you know if we get any feedback on that one. Um, so this leads then to an article that you authored with our friend, Margaret Goldberg. She's amazing. Um, just a plug for her. Um, recently in the reading teacher. So re- by recently, I mean Feb- February, right? So it's February. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think I it's the last year that came out. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I kind of forget what month we're in right now, but yeah. Um, and the title of the article, I'm going to read it because I have to read it with the correct punctuation here. So the title of the article or the, the piece is called Lessons Learned, Reading Wars, Reading First, and A Way Forward. Did you hear me like articulate that question mark in there? I did. Your inflection was 
spot on. <laughs> Thank you very much. So my question is, what prompted the two of you to write that piece? Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that. You know, uh, I love to shout out to Margaret. I'm, I'm a huge fan. Um, you know, I heard her on some webinars and read some of her posts. And she actually contacted me a couple of times to do, I don't know, just some questions. And I was I was always so impressed by her ability to present really important findings and insights from the research as they apply to what classroom teachers need to do to help all kids learn to read. But mm. at the same time, and this is what really captured me, at the same time, she was supremely empathic and understanding of the, of the tough spot that so many teachers are in. And this is even before before the pandemic. I mean, it really was, I mean, it's in spades, right? It's, I mean, unspeakable now. But even before the, the pandemic, that teachers were in a tough spot. How hard it is to, to change and to give up assumptions and beliefs that have defied, you know, their practices and to which they feel such commitment. In some mm-hmm. cases, you know, religious commitments that are sort of aided and abetted by some of the thought leaders. I remember Ken Goodman talking about whole language as being a whole language symposium being like a revival meeting. So they actually fueled a lot of this sort of religious-like zealotry. So when teachers are in that position, it makes it very hard to kind of reconsider, think outside the box, you know, choose your cliche. Mm -hmm. So, you know, teachers have challenging jobs. That's not new news, um, particularly with kids who don't have the same opportunities as mine, and I suspect, you know, yours had. And and they've not been given the best tools to work with as far as, you know, research and successful practice and so forth. So anyway, I just, I just emailed Margaret one day and we chatted and um, I just proposed that we write something together. I, I figured I couldn't miss learning something useful from her. And she seemed like such a engaging, insightful person. So anyway, we started batting around topics. It really took us several months and several false starts before we landed on, on this topic. And, and the spark was really something that, I think almost an offhand comment that she made, either to me or in one of the Zoom gatherings. And she said that we don't want a repeat of reading first. So I'd been sort of thinking along the same lines, but hadn't articulated it quite as crisply. And it turns out that she she lived through reading first as uh, on uh, on the front lines as a as a teacher, a pretty freshly minted teacher. This was in the as you know the early two thousands and around then. And she got her teaching credential and started teaching. And she started teaching in a pretty affluent district. And and the the things that were going on before reading first, you know, the balanced literacy and so forth. You know, they seemed to work pretty well. No one had any problems. And, so then reading first came in, she changed to another district where the challenges were quite different. And and she she said, you know, there are definitely some lessons to be learned there. And I was thinking along the same lines. And so we decided to try to, you know, draw them out and try to speak to the current moment where we both both saw inklings of another road down the reading first path. Can you, for our listeners that maybe don't know what Reading First is, maybe they're young in the classroom and don't remember those days, can you give us a quick quick history lesson? Sure. Well, Reading First was a um, followed in the heels of No Child Left Behind, you know, the, the signature education legislation of the Bush administration. And Reading First... Um, the purpose of Reading First was to encourage states to develop policies so that scientifically-based reading research, what science of reading was called 20 years ago, right. old wine, <laughs> new bottles, blah, 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 <laughs> um, to encourage states to implement that in their, in their schools, in their districts and in their schools. Now, states were not required to do reading first. It's very important. Uh, I mean, the federal government, there's very little they can require. I mean, all, all they can do is withhold funds. 
mm-hmm. um, which is requirement enough, you know, because most school districts will do what they can. States, sure. school districts will yeah. do what they can to get those funds. So even though technically they weren't required, uh, these funds that, that would support materials and professional development and all sorts of, you know, good things that, that districts need. If they wanted access to those funds, then they had to commit to implementing scientifically based reading research uh, in their states and then make available through a uh, sort of a grant offering uh, procedure, make, uh, make available to districts this fund with the same proviso that they would establish district policies to implement scientifically based reading research, right? So that was the whole point and purpose of reading first. And it's useful to know kind of the kind of the organizational structure, because when people say this is the federal government intruding on reading policy, that's that's not exactly correct, because states could have said, no, we're not interested in that. We're not going to do it. But it turns out, I think, 49 states, um, plus the Bureau of Indian Affairs and I think they went they went after the funds and they became reading first states. Now not all school districts applied for the funds. Some districts were not interested. But mm-hmm. you know, a lot of districts did and so in in the final analysis only a minority of school districts around the country implemented reading first. But those that did signed on to the whole notion of scientifically based reading research, specifically implementing those five pillars that the National Reading Panel had stipulated. Got it. Got it. And and then why did you and Margaret feel like this was a really good example? What can we take from that to what's happening now? Right, 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 right. Well, um, I mean, I mean, the simple reason was that that we saw we were going down the same road, right? And we didn't want to repeat of it. And um, and and we knew that there were different narratives about what happened with reading first. For some mm-hmm. people, uh, reading first was not a failure. It worked where it worked. And there's a whole narrative around that, mm-hmm. complete with lessons about it failing where it didn't work because of political undermining, failure to implement, malfeasance inside and outside of the program. Right? For others, reading first was an absolute failure, complete, utter, absolute failure. And there was, as you probably know, a national evaluation that concluded modest effects on decoding skills, a.k.a. basic reading, mm-hmm. and no effect on comprehension, right? Mm-hmm. Not much to show for a billion dollars a year investment that by the last year, the f- fiscal 2008, had been cut down to under $400 million, which Reading First defenders or apologists said that was part of the problem. They never fully funded it. So neither of these two narratives is wholly accurate, as you, as you might imagine. Uh, and we, we were fortunate in that Reed Lyon, who was the architect of Reading First, was incredible in helping us piece together a more realistic and accurate portrayal of what happened, why, and what the lessons are. Would mm. you like to hear some of those lessons? I'm dying. I'm dying to hear. <laughs> <laughs> need to know. Need to know need- basis. <laughs> well, there's several. I'm, I'm going to highlight Two, I think, the fundamental ones. Um, The first and the most important lesson is that you just can't bulldoze through reading policies and classroom reading practices where educators really don't fully understand what the rationale is and and why they're being required to implement them. You know, education is famously, the organizational theorists like call it, loosely coupled. It's a loosely coupled Mm -hmm. enterprise, which means that policies dictated from on high are very hard to implement throughout the system. You know, each level has a fair amount of autonomy, all the way down to the down. I I say that advisedly, all the way down to the classroom teacher, which is where, you know, as they say, the rubber hits the road. There's a fair amount of autonomy at each of these lessons. You know, you can do implementation walkthroughs and check on people, as was done for sure during Reading First. But, you know, when the observer is gone, you don't really know what's going on. You know, I suppose that if you have a TikToker posting on a regular basis, you might know something. But, you know, there was no TikTok in the early 2000s. (laughs) 
So people make the unfortunate assumption, and I've actually heard this voiced explicitly, that you implement education policy in the same way you command an army. Really? I mean, that is just preposterous. And if that's, that's your scary. theory of implementation, yeah. If that's your theory of implementation, then you should join the military. You'll be very happy and at home there. Secondly, and very tightly related to this first issue, teachers have to understand why they're being required. And I don't even like to talk in terms of requirements since it sends a, really a terrible message. But yeah. why they are required, recommended, strongly encouraged, whatever you prefer to use. Why they are expected to do this rather than that. You know, a clear rationale for this rather than that was never adequately spelled out, as far as we can tell, and from Margaret's direct experience. Mm. She never heard that. The communication and the professional development was wholly inadequate, often boiling down to do this because it's the policy. Now, that's not made up. That's not hyperbole. That was actually in Reading First documents that went out to Reading First programs around the country. I mean, it's documented. There's no secret here. But teachers need to be helped to understand that the dominant theory or approach to early literacy, known as balanced literacy or 3Qing, both of which are direct descendants of whole language, they needed to understand that it was simply wrong and would continue to fail millions of children. And in contrast, a foundational skills approach combined with attention to vocabulary and comprehension, it was not just about phonics, that this approach would create a better foundation from which most of those millions of kids would be able to make further sustained progress. You know, as I mentioned before, it was not a guarantee. There are no guarantees, but it almost certainly increased the chances substantially of reading success for kids who traditionally just have not been served well by our schools. Mm. So there are other lessons I can babble on about, but I'd say those are the top two. You know, that really resonates me with me because I talk with a lot of districts and schools and educators across the country. And I hear a lot of times that this district is implementing science of reading and all teachers now need to be teaching science of reading, but they don't provide any rationale. They don't provide professional development. They don't help their teachers understand why making this shift to a different program or different assessment actually supports that element. And so the thing that's closest to the learning outcomes or the students, right? The teacher right. who has yes. the biggest impact on what they're, you know, what the students actually achieve are being left out of the process. Absol- absolutely. I mean, a hundred thousand percent. And, and again, that's another indication of how we're going down the same road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A yeah. perfect illustration. And, and I'm hoping, like I'm hearing more talk about um, looking at higher higher ed and and making some changes there and you know like how we can provide more robust professional development i hope that and maybe this podcast will be a way to sort of highlight the importance of that but i hope we're not going down that same road for the sake of the kids absolutely couldn't agree more yeah so let's make a a a transition here we talked a little bit about biliteracy development um we talked a little bit about the science of reading uh, relates to biliteracy development, um, but you also authored an article in the Reading Research Quarterly, and we can link our listeners in the show notes to all of these resources we're talking about. Um, this was a, I think this was the special science of reading edition, if I'm not mistaken. That, that's correct. They turned out at, had two or three. They had so many articles that they ended up doing, I think, two or three issues on science of reading. Interesting. Well, this one you also titled Reading Wars, Reading Science, and English Learners. Right. So what, what was sort of the, the genesis for that article, and, and how can we bring in this idea of the English learners then to the conversation? Great. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, science of reading and English learners. Someone this morning sent me a link to an online biliteracy symposium that Amplify is sponsoring. <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> no, uh-oh. No, absolutely not. I mean, in fact, the tag phrase, the tag phrase is 
how this, I'm going to read this, make sure I, I don't mess it up. How the okay. science of reading can help you accelerate literacy development for your English language learners. I hope I got that right. Now, I'm, I'm encouraged by this. I really, no, no, there's no irony here, right? <laughs> I am unabashedly encouraged by this because right now, English language learner advocates and some researchers are expressing profound skepticism about the science of reading, saying, for example, the science encourages one size fits all thinking and that it's of limited utility for kids learning to read in a language they are simultaneously learning to speak and understand. I think that's nonsense. I mean, I think it's, it's utter nonsense. But again, we have a problem with communication, with understanding, with clarity, mm. and with appropriate skepticism. And I mean, I, I think there are definitely some areas for convergence. And and this one is one of them, because what we know, as I said before, about science of reading, what we know about learning to read, is that regardless of what language you're reading in, and again, I'm mainly talking about alphabetic languages, just for clarity, sure, regardless yeah. of what language you're learning to read in, and regardless of whether you are learning to read in a language you are simultaneously learning to understand, those foundational skills matter. They are foundational. They're called foundational for a reason. <laughs> the difference is that for kids learning to read in a language they're simultaneously learning to speak and understand, you need to provide second language support mm -hmm. so that they understand the words they're being taught to read. And we have very good evidence from two fundamental, I should say foundational, studies, one by Sharon Vaughn and one by Linnea Airy, names that I, I'm sure are familiar to you and should be familiar to your listeners, who demonstrated very persuasively that if you take the foundational plus vocabulary and comprehension and even throw in some writing, as you very appropriately mentioned, if you take those fundamental things, elements of instruction, and add to them English language support so that the kids understand the words, can use the words, can write the words, can understand the words, can define, the, you know, however you define knowing the language that you're being taught to read, if you include that, then you will get a significant bump in reading, early reading development. And these are all kids who are at risk for early reading difficulties. These were not kids labeled dyslexic or anything like that. Mm. They were at risk based on, you know, certain screening elements that can be that can be used to identify kids who are might have problems. It's not a definitive diagnosis by any means, mm -hmm. which is another area where we have a lot of misunderstanding. But they were at risk. So these are, you know, lowest achievers, like the bottom court quartile or something. And if you do these foundational skills plus vocabulary and comprehension plus writing, and you add an English language development component to give them meaning access to what they're learning to read, then you get a, a very important, modest to strong effect on their reading achievement. So that's all I would consider that part of the science of reading. And anyone who excludes that from the science of reading really is just misinformed. Hmm. So just like there is some wars in science of reading, teaching English, it feels like there's, I even hate to say this and get it out in the universe, but there are some disagreements or wars happening in biliteracy too. Ugh, it feels yeah. awful. Well, well, yeah, I mean, it does. It does. I, I'm going to tell you some good news in just a minute, but let Great. me just clarify that. I mean, <laughs> what, what happens is that there, there, if you, you know, if we want to keep using the war metaphor, which which I hate, but there are different fronts that have opened, or facets, or dimensions, or aspects of the debate. You know, there's the traditional one. I mean, years ago when Gene Shaw was writing "Learning to Read: The Great Debate," you know, when I was in kindergarten, <laughs> I wasn't born yet. No. <laughs> you weren't born, right. and you were on the horizon. Um, it was whole word versus phonics, mm -hmm. right? Whole word versus phonics. In subsequent years, the whole word transformed the whole language, which is more than just whole word in all fairness. I mean, right. people still think about whole word versus phonics. 
whole word is in the past. It's now, it then became whole language, right? Whole language versus phonics. And then when whole language got a suspect name, that can then transformed into balanced literacy mm-hmm. or three queuing mm-hmm. or literature-based reading, right? Those were the, that was the nomenclature. Again, there was a lot of old wine and new bottles going on. Sure. But it was always that other thing that is not phonics versus phonics. So that's been a traditional line of demarcation, shall we say. Now, since then, other players and interests and advocates, right? And I, I don't mean to disparage them by any means. There's the parents of dyslexic kids. They, they have become very active because it, it's now become clear that there are tools for identifying kids with potential reading difficulties. Mm-hmm. And Joe Torgerson wrote another really important article, like early, like 1998. You know, we're talking about a quarter century ago. Something like, catch them before they fail. Or don't wait until they fail. And mm-hmm. the special ed system in our country is really broken because you got to fail before you're eligible for additional help. Whereas in reality, those early signs of potential problems exist earlier when kids, you know, come into kindergarten. Now, we've also gone to the extreme and there's legislation that says screen using nonsense words, which itself is nonsense. So we keep bouncing back and forth between just ridiculous extremes. But let's just leave it at this, that we have means of identifying kids with potential reading difficulties. And, and really, you can prevent dyslexia to, to a large extent. And parents of dyslexic kids whose kids have not had their needs met, and they realize that early on, maybe not as early as kindergarten because they weren't screened, say, you know, we got to do something about this. We got to catch them before they fail because the price of failure is just too high. So they've come down four square on the science of on the side of science of reading, sometimes not with as precise an understanding as we might like, but they've become an advocacy and an interest group. Mm-hmm. And the third group that I know about are the ones that you brought up. Mm-hmm. The people, and I include myself in the category of people who worry about English learners. I mean, that's why I got sure. into this whole thing however long ago, 40, 50 years ago. Not 50, that's too long. That's, I'm not that old. <laughs> but But... You have to be worried about English learners have, you know, we have different labels for them, you know, but again, the, the issues and the challenges that they face and their teachers face have largely remained the same. And what's worse is that the, the debate over bilingual education sort of for up until the early 2000s basically obscured any other research, advocacy, issues identifying the needs of English language learners. Now, just to be clear, I'm a big fan of bilingual education. I'd be glad to come and talk about it sometime if you'd like, but I don't want to get off track. But that just suffice to say that the bilingual education debate dominated discussion, discourse, and research around English language learners. Very recently, we have realized that there's more to their school success than bilingual education. Bilingual education can make a contribution but there are much more challenges, many more challenges in addition to that. So now the English language learner community being concerned about a repeat of reading first and how reading first, according to their narrative, was an abject failure. Say, uh-uh, mm. we're not going to stand by and let this happen again. And you got all this reading science with people very excited, but it's one size fits all. It doesn't make, it has no our kids have no place in it, plus the fact that they're not learning to read in their own language. What are you going to do about that? Reading science has nothing to say about that, untrue. And reading science has nothing to say about bilingual education that we're interested in. Well, too bad, but it does have something to say about bilingual education if you just listen and pay attention. So there's lots that science of reading can say to all of these groups. Some privilege it more than others. Some are more skeptical than others. But I'll tell you what, here's the good news, Susan. I know you've been very patient waiting for this good news in, in the midst of my harangue. The good news is that there's a lot of commonality. There's a lot of common ground, but people don't realize it. I have not met a single advocate for any of these sides that I sketched out that wants kids to fail, that wants kids to get screwed, that doesn't want the very best for all kids, their own for sure, but yeah. everyone's kids. They're all very kid-oriented. They just have very, very definition, different definitions and ways of approaching that without realizing that underneath there's a tremendous amount of agreement 
that we can build on as our foundation for putting in place what needs to get put in place while we push ahead on things about which there are some legitimate disagreements, issues that need to be resolved in practice and research. I am optimistic that there is a way forward here. Hmm. You know, it, it, it feels like, oh, there's so much more to explore here. We may have to have you on for another session, but. <laughs> Twist it, my it, arm. Okay, I will. I promise. Um, it, it feels like, first of all, we should bring this, sort of wrap this thing up because there's lots of nuggets in here. And, and listeners, you're going to be listening to this one more than once. I guarantee it. With that hope and optimism that there is a way forward, and thank you for ending on that because that makes me feel a lot better. Is there, <laughs> is there any in, in all of this sea of stuff, whether it's science of reading, bilingual education, and all the sea of stuff, are there any like real nuggets or final thoughts or pieces of advice that you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I, I would want to leave, leave them with that, 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 there, that there is a way forward here, but it's going to require clear communication, accepting skepticism when skepticism is warranted, and listening. It's going to take a lot of listening, assuming that the person you're discussing or arguing with wants the same things for their kids that you want for yours, and that what we want for our kids, we have more in common then we have dividing us. There are some divisions. There are some things that need to be prioritized. I'm not, I'm not saying let's sing Kumbaya and our, I mean, that would be totally naive. It'd be yeah. the opposite of skepticism. It'd be sort of idealistic fantasy. It doesn't exist. But if we listen, if we communicate clearly, if we pay attention, giving people the benefit of the doubt that what they want is for all kids, then I think we can we can move forward. And I mean, I actually have a, a, a really good example. I think what's going on in Illinois, I've been involved in some of the conversations in passing some of their legislation, um, which they've sort of put on pause for a while to get more people in to discuss the various issues. They, they, they've taken seriously the lessons mm. of, of reading first and have made, from what I can tell, a commitment not to go down that road again because – our kids are too important. Learning to read is too important. You can't have another bulldozing attempt to force people, you know, to to toe the line, you know, and step yeah. in line and command and control. And this is what you will do. We just can't afford to do that. And and I see the, the beginning glimmerings of that sort of approach in Illinois. And my most fervent wish would be, A, for that to be successful, obviously, and B, for it to spread mm. around the country. Yeah. That's what I would wish for. I love that. It's a great place to close. And and I'm just going to do that rallying cry in just my own way that I communicate. It's really about the kids. And let's put our let's put our adult stuff aside and come together for for the sake of the kids in our country um, and just support them with what they need. Claude, it's been fun. Wow. Thanks, Susan. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. You're you're a terrific interviewer. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for the work that you've done and the work that you continue to do. We really do appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening and keep your feedback coming. Want to learn more? Be sure to stay connected by subscribing to your favorite podcast app and join our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community.